Our first reading for today is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Our second reading is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The word of the Lord. Um, I have the privilege of worshiping with the kids um, and preaching the gospel to them every Sunday. Um, But rarely do I get to join you all um, in worship to God. So I consider it a great privilege to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you this morning. Um, I love that song, by the way. (laughs) I've not heard it in years, so thank you. That was very comforting. Um, okay, so visualize with me this morning the scripture that uh, John just read for us. Imagine with me um, Jesus as he's teaching and like a throng of people who have gathered because of him. Imagine um, his disciples who follow him. Um, they're like guards, really. Um, See his disciples who have left life as they knew it. Um, They left it all behind because they believe that what Jesus taught them gave them life. That this human who seemed so impossibly not human in his authority was proclaiming the good news to the poor. This Jesus was binding up the brokenhearted. He was proclaiming the freedom for the captives and releasing those who had been oppressed by the forces of darkness. This Jesus who bestowed upon these disciples something, something, which they, at the time, just couldn't quite pinpoint what, something akin to perhaps what the prophet Isaiah wrote. That is, that on their weary heads, a crown of beauty instead of ashes would be given. That these lowly men, who must have been world-worn, tired of all the ups and downs of life, the harshness of the grind of daily living, to these lowly men of no real social repute, that to these was made available hope. To these lowly men was made available Jesus. They had access to him. 
Granted, at the time, the disciples seemed very clueless. Here Jesus is proclaiming the promises of God, that the lowly will be crowned and given royal garments, not the kind that the worldly kings and rulers wear, but of those who belong to the kingdom of God. These disciples, who could not really understand what Jesus was teaching, they still followed because they could not deny the miracles he performed. They could not deny the sense of purpose they now felt in being part of his world, his work. So imagine with me Jesus teaching his disciples who wanted to protect him from the crowds who always wanted him, all those people who wanted to touch him, be touched by him, even perhaps to touch the fringe of his garment. Imagine how protective they were of him when the crowds wanted him, though later these same disciples skedaddled when the crowds wanted to kill him. But here, in this stage of the story, the disciples thought themselves to be Jesus' executors, his bodyguards, the gatekeepers, really, uh, through whom people could come to Jesus. They could have easily seen themselves as the ones who determined who took up Jesus' time, received Jesus' touch. Well-intentioned, I am sure. So much so that when, on that particular day, the crowds start to bring children to Jesus that he might touch them, the disciples rebuke them. The disciples shoo them away. But Jesus saw this. And when he did, he was incensed by it. Jesus was, in the Greek, agonectesin, which is a strong word meaning be aroused, indignant, angry. Jesus is angry. So he stops them from dismissing the children and says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive, receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall not enter it. And he took the children in his arms, blessed them, laying his hands on them. Why was Jesus so incensed? What did the children represent to Jesus? To get a better grasp of that question, let us turn to the second reading of today, Matthew 18. Here we find these same disciples, these same lowly men whom Jesus called to follow him, these men who themselves must have experienced how Jesus lifted them up and out of their lowly station in life. These men who do not seem to be so insecure anymore because they brazenly ask him a question, a question that I honestly don't think a lowly person would ever ask. Because you see, a lowly person understands that his place with Jesus is a gift. Not one that is earned, but rather one that is simply received with a grateful heart. And therefore, can never be held as one's own accomplishment, to be held as a badge of worthiness. Such a person who understands this could not dare to ask the question that 
was percolating in the disciples' heads, brewing to be asked. They ask, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, why would one ask this if one believed that one was the least in the kingdom? Why would you ask so that he could tell you that you're the least? No, you ask because you you really think you can buy for the top. And so Jesus responds by doing something that none of them could have guessed would have been his answer. He calls a child, a random child, mind you, because I don't think Jesus pre-orchestrated the whole thing so that the best child in the village so happened to be there at that very moment. I don't think this child's meant to be a representative of, say, good behavior or as a child who has the best grades or the best possible future. If anything, this child's probably the least noticeable and most disregarded. But Matthew tells us that Jesus calls this nameless child to himself and puts the child in the midst of them. So again, visualize this with me. Jesus, his disciples, and in among them, a child. Take notice that before Jesus gives a verbal response to his disciples' question of who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he creates for the disciples a visual parable. So exciting. One in which the disciples themselves are now actors in. Jesus creates for them a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. He puts in their midst the very thing they wish to shoo away. And placing the child in their midst, he is visually posing the question. If you cannot make room in your midst for the child, you will never understand what any of what I've been teaching you is about. It is only after placing the child in their midst that Jesus then speaks his answers. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like Children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The verb here literally means to turn oneself around. Another way of putting it is to turn oneself from one's course of conduct, action, or to stop and change your direction, to return. Jesus is not only verbally explicit, but he is also visually very clear. If you don't include the child in your assumptions about what God's kingdom is, and therefore if you cannot turn yourselves back into the lowly position of children, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will actually lock yourself out of what it is. Then Jesus continues and says, Whoever humbles, whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. 
So I've done children's ministry for most of my adult life now, and I've been entering my seventh year here at Graceway, um, but I've been doing this for about 25 years, which makes me one years old. Um, and then over these 25 plus years, I have either heard in passing or have been told directly uh, um, such comments that honestly really cut me up inside. Um, comments like, um, I don't like it when children are in service. They are so distracting. Or, um, I don't want to serve in the children's ministry because I get enough children during the week at home. I need a break. Or, Joint worship service aren't real worship services. I don't really like them. I don't really sense the spirit there. I think this is all said with the understanding that only adults, well-matured, rational beings, understand and therefore can participate in authentic Sunday worship of God. For when Jesus brings a child into the circle... He paints for us actually a picture of what that church body actually should look like. It includes children, and if we don't recognize that, we have all become way too self-important to see that without their inclusion in our ecclesial life, we are not a church, at least not the kind that Jesus envisioned for us. To not include them would be to heed no attention to God's greatest commandment found in Deuteronomy 6. O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontless in front of your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the life of faith that God calls us to requires that we recognize that God ought to permeate all of life, no stone unturned. And paramount to this means that we have to recognize that um, children um, and those who take the lowest prong of any kind of social order are part of life. To exclude them or to relegate them as second thought members is to consider them as lesser members. Children in any church should be a constant reminder that there are always newcomers to church. They are not the ones who have established themselves in leadership or into the social structures of that church. You see, Matthew 18 continues to tell us what Jesus says in response to his disciples' question. Jesus adds, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone 
hung around his neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I don't know if you know what a millstone is. Um, It's one of those big, massive stones that a beast of burden has to churn up against another one. You put grain inside it, and it just pulverizes it into um, powder. You know, you get flour and mill. Um, It's enormous. To drown someone, you would need a fraction of the size of a millstone. But again, this is really meant to underscore Jesus' seriousness against those who mislead or sin against the most fragile in the church or even in this world. I understand that uh, for us today, we have a different view of children, that what people of Jesus' time thought of children back then was very different. And therefore, it's harder for us to understand um, exactly what it is about children that Jesus is trying to highlight here. Jesus is not saying that children should be the center of the church or the focus of our lives. I know that today we focus so much on our children. All our energies are placed on our hopes for them to excel so that they can be the best at something, so that they can get into a good school and have a promising future. But back then... Um, children held the lowest place within the, the structures. Adults didn't invest in them as they do now. Um, I imagine, at best, children were thought to be kind of like servants, like being um, little beings who you tell to go fetch water or do something, you know? Um, children were the most vulnerable members of society, and thus they were the easiest to manipulate. Children had to depend completely and utterly on adults. Their owners, kind of, right? So children here in Matthew 18 is both literal, meaning, you know, young humans, um, but also it becomes a stand-in for those in church and society who are the most vulnerable, most lowly, most excluded, and invisible. You see, chapter 18 of Matthew begins with the disciples' question of who is the greatest, but that question actually serves as a framework for the whole chapter. The question sets up what is at the heart of the chapter, which is ecclesial life, the life of a church. It's what biblical scholars refer to as the community discourse which in simple terms means like uh, rules of how the household of God should be run. In other words, how to keep the church together and working and going. Um, Therefore, key to the vision of what the church is can only happen if we are not only mindful of the presence of children in our midst, but that in order for us to work as a church, we must all turn and humble ourselves if we can ever hope to enter into the life of God's kingdom. After the disciples ask their question, after he answers it, you will find that Jesus tells us more ways or uh, how, to, how to take care for the church. And one, um, immediately after, he says to us, If one of 99 is lost, 
Don't let them go. It's our responsibility. Go after him. Don't forget him. And focus on the 99. They're safe and secure. But go after him so that he will turn back and return. Then immediately connected to that, we are told how to deal with brothers who sin. Brothers and sisters who sin. What to do when it becomes clear that this person is sinning against God and people. Again, Jesus tells us, don't let them go. Approach him in private. If that doesn't work, then approach him with one or two other people. If that fails, make it known to the whole church so that he will turn his ways. Believers, we, are responsible for one another because this is the will of God that we love one another. The chapter ends with um, the parable of the unforgiving slave. The slave who is too righteous in his own eyes that he cannot see his own folly. Um, When he owes his master an insurmountable debt, his master takes pity on him and forgives him his debt. But when a fellow slave owes him a pittance in comparison to the debt he himself was forgiven, he is unwilling to forgive his fellow slave of his debt and throws him in prison until he shall pay him back. This unforgiving slave lacked the humility that Jesus is speaking of. The humility that is necessary if you want to be great in God's kingdom. That is, the slave lacked the ability to see himself for who he really is. He had been forgiven a debt he could never have paid down. The act of mercy bestowed on him does not change his conduct, however. He is unable to see that he is a child at the mercy of his master. But his master responds with forgiveness. He forgives him his debt. The slave does not understand the magnitude of the debt he was forgiven. He cannot, in turn, do the same for a fellow slave. His response should have been, I have been forgiven much, and I, I am the least of a master slave. Instead, he counted what he felt was owed to him and thought himself higher than he really is. Church, how serious do we take Jesus' words here? Oftentimes, I really think I um, make too light 
the kind of radical change that God requires of us? Do we take his words seriously enough that we actually discipline ourselves and discipline each other when we have become stumbling blocks? True faith commitments take radical choices to maintain both our individual and corporate life here at Graceway and in the larger global church. But we, we ought to do what the unforgiving slave could not do. We ought to turn from our ways. We ought to humble ourselves as children. Unlike the unforgiving slave, we can look to our master, Jesus Christ, and do as Jesus did for us, who did not come to be served, but to serve. This is what the disciples could not see, even though they were with him. Before their very eyes was a master who lived by example. Jesus Christ, too, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? We stand in all of you, Lord. As the psalmist writes, from the mouths of children and nursing babes, you have ordained praise on account of your adversaries. Help us to be your children, Father. Help us so that the praises of our mouths will be like a wall that stops the talk of your enemies. For who are we apart from you? What are we that you take thought of us, take notice of us, You who have made the heavens with your fingers, you have set the moon and stars in place. So set your words upon our hearts that we might reflect your glory. Make us those who bear your name. We call to you, Abba, Father. Make us yours. Turn us to you. Turn us to you. Amen.